Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey & Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Honey & Co. I'm Sarit Packer. I'm Itamar Srulovic and this is uh, where we talk to the people we find most interesting in the food world. We talk to waiters, drinkers, eaters, cookers, if that's a thing, which is not a thing at all. And we are especially <laughs> delighted to be hosting this series of special events here at the Victoria and Albert Museum in South Kensington in London. This is a series that's to do with the exhibition Food Bigger Than the Plate. It is bigger than the plate. We're joined by an exhibiting team, David Burns and Austin Young, also known as Fallen Fruit. Welcome, David and Austin. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> This is like, we met before. We did like a little conversation when we were speaking to the lovely curators of the exhibition in our previous episode, and we enjoyed it so much because mostly we just laughed for 15 minutes. Yeah. Now we thought, oh, let's laugh with everyone for 45 minutes. Okay. Wow. Discuss everything we that's going on. It's a bit of pressure. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, and you have a really good talk to, to top, you know. So, guys, <laughs> what have you done for the exhibition? What are you, what's your exhibit? What we were invited to do for Food Bigger Than the Plate was to create two components. And, and one of them was to create what be, has become a wallpaper pattern for the exhibition room uh, that really looks at the location of this museum, specifically uh, historically in London. But then also it looks at what the v itself is as an institution, which is looking at the history of cultural objects. And, and so we did that. The second component that we created was a small series of maps of the city of London that looked at food production and specifically fruit trees in the public realm, public spaces. So let's start from the first one, which is this beautiful wallpaper, which is around. Describe it for us first and then how you came about actually producing this. Catherine and May, the curators, asked us to create a piece that was looking at the history of farming in, on the site, and, and this specifically was a fruit orchard. So we went through the V&A print collection and looked, and actually the V&A at large, and, but what we really got inspired by was the incredible original botanical drawings and uh, Chinese watercolors and different paintings of fruits, and we created a 
really large, basically a repeat pattern to make a wallpaper for the V&A that um, celebrates fruit and, and the v What's mean, really cool about this wallpaper for us is this is the first time we made a pattern, which we've done for many years for other cities and institutions. But this one's different because instead of doing original photography, they all are made with a photographic process. But in other places, we would take photographs on the sides of streets, along pathways and alleyways and cities to create this, this portrait of a city that gives you an impression of a neighborhood instead of a different form of portraiture that's about recognizing someone's face. In this case, we did that through looking at historical drawings that other people made that were looking at botanical records and the indexing of what grew in these places. It's the first time we've used so many insects and moths and pollinators integrated into this, this particular pattern. And there, Those and details are unique. Know, there's oranges and pomegranates and figs and and uh, plums, cherries, worms, <laughs> lots of insects, which we, we also wanted to honor the insect world. I think that's beautiful because, uh, first of all, the, the whole color is super vibrant and the, the whole thing hits you as soon as you walk into the exhibition. And then when you look closer, you do. You see some worms, you see some beetles, you see some butterflies. Maybe on a classic wallpaper that you would expect in the V&A, you'd kind of think, oh, just like a peach. Or, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, Not it's, so much the worm. <laughs> but it, it's, it's even more than that because we, we like to bring... We want to bring a sense of joy and delight when you, when you look at the paper. So we want to tra- transform your, your experience when you're entering the museum space. I mean, it, it's a very joyous thing to look at. And it, it's somehow very obvious that it's contemporary, but you can see the, the connection to kind of the, the Victorian botanical drawings. It's, it's just a thing of great beauty. And really lifts the heart, and and it's such a it's so it, for us to be able to ha- to be able to make a wallpaper for a place that it has such a you know a famous important wallpaper collection. Then you start starting with you know, um, it's amazing. Isn't well, it? yeah, no pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of pressure. It's but, like... I, I, but also you know we really do think of this this piece as a portrait of the V&A and London. I mean, you, you guys are, are artists, you're, you're not farmers. Your, your, your exhibit is in the farming section of the exhibition. Woo! Uh, <laughs> but it is kind of a completely different way of looking at, at farming and, and food production in the urban context. And I'm, 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 I'm talking about your food map and your fruit tree. But, but I, I think that's how the two projects actually do go together, even if they seem abstractly linked that we're looking at a history of this geography of a city that looks back, you know, a little more than 150 years ago. The Great Exposition, like, really changes the way the city performs itself, but it also changes the way we think about cities around the world. And in those ways, we are still reconsidering what cities might be. I mean, it's appropriate for us to think that a city could provide food for its residents again, which it once did. Our ideas about transnational food relationships are really an idea that was brought to us in previous generations. It's not a legacy that we need to exclusively maintain. Our cities can be more than that, and that's part of what we're interested in. And you you kind of mentioned very briefly before, but the site here used to be an orchard. And one of the maps that you've created is where you think 
this orchard can be recreated. <laughs> and actually I was standing, it was really funny, but I was standing next to, to a couple who were looking at all the maps and trying to pinpoint where they should go foraging on the thing. They were looking at the Brixton map and then they were like, what's the X's? What do we find on, on the X's? And it took them, it was nice to see people kind of figure out, ah, this is what it could be and this is where we could go. And I think that really speaks volumes into what the future can be as well as what it is now. But you've mapped three areas? We mapped um, Hampstead and uh, then the city of London, like along Embankment, which is ridiculously vibrant. It's kind of shocking. And then Brixton, and then the fourth map is uh, in this particular neighborhood, which is more of a proposal. We like, this is a new thing for us. It's to create proposals for cities to think about the future. Well, the, the Victorian Embankment Garden is, is kind of this incredible example of what it, uh, a park could be, because the gardener there has planted of tons of varieties of fruit in, in this, you know, incredibly manicured garden right in, in the center of London. What kind of fruits do you think are best for urban city dwelling trees? Deciduous trees, trees that drop their leaves, are extremely smart for urban soil. The natural biological process of a deciduous fruit tree is to shed any toxins through the defoliation, the dropping of leaves, and to you know, preserve the fruit as its reproductive process. It's, it's actually what's being protected and matured correctly. So urban fruit is you know, in most cases organic and completely healthy. It doesn't just sustain a possible, you know, human population, but we're also sustaining our animal friends and others. So the, the trees that are going in the grotty Stokewell roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> are delicious, I yeah. promise you. They're extra but, special. But yeah. and there there's there's no problem with that. I can eat them. You might want to wash them off, but maybe uh, yeah. not. I don't know. I don't know you, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> so activism but use it in a way that doesn't have opposition. Is it possible to do something that is holistic and community-based, that kind of grassroots yes, without creating a no? And there were three of us at the time that we started the project, and we all lived in a neighborhood of Los Angeles that has become quite gentrified. 
Uh, uh, yeah, Matthias Wigner was our, our third member. And we, we lived in this neighborhood. And so between our houses, we decided the project should exist. So we took a walk and we mapped in between our three houses, which is about a total of 15 blocks of Los Angeles, there were over 100 fruit trees that were not being picked, that crossed over fence lines, that were growing in alleys that were not being cared for. And we realized that most people went to a grocery store that was owned by a corporation that had food that came from, if we were lucky, it was in the United States, but often it came from maybe 3,000 miles away. It was really exciting at the time because nobody walks in LA, so. <laughs> <laughs> it it is really ones. true, yeah. I promise you, it's pictures. true, it's true. <laughs> so we kind of, we were thinking, of thinking like, at the core of our project, it was to get people out into the streets, have neighbors meet each other, and sort of bond over fruit. And also, also the idea is, you know, why should cities plant ornamentals when we could be planting a, a resource to share? And it was kind of before urban farming had become popular. People were really thinking in that direction. So we sparked, I think, a, a, lot, a lot of excitement around this idea. And you have done other cities since. Which other ones? Which are your favorites? Because it does, it does feel very L.A. and very California because, you know, it is kind of famous from its fruit and the good weather. And yeah. yeah, but most of yeah. that in California is really just an illusion. I mean, there's hardly native fruit in California. There's some berries and some wild grapes. Well, you also are not going to find, you know, fruit growing around Beverly Hills or, or really expensive neighborhoods because, <laughs> you know, and, and people are really careful about what they plant. But it's usually in a neighborhood in any city where it's been really diverse, maybe even immigrant population who, who are like, oh, I want to plant, you know, this type of fruit from my home or... That's true for all cities that we've done projects in around the world. So you ask, I don't know, there's um, fantastic, incredible neighborhoods of Linz, Austria, uh, Palermo, Sicily is incredibly rich with fruits that are not native to Sicily. Of course, Los Angeles and California, uh, Mexico, uh, Central and Latin America often have communities that are communal when they're planted with fruit trees. It's for anyone who cares to, to take from the tree. It's the idea of a manicured urban city that's actually a modern idea. The idea of removing agricultural from an urban space, that illusion of concrete, steel, and glass, the moving sidewalks of the future. Or that cities, you know, sidewalks should be kept clean and neat and everything's, you know, perfect. Fruit trees are quite messy. Especially the situations. Yeah. yeah. Like mulberries are super messy, but, oh, but they're so they're good. So good. Yeah. You know, it's like There's like a really like good one actually in Stockwell. Yeah. <laughs> we found it. <laughs> but we have figs. But, but this is, you know, this is kind of the idea of the city should be clean or the city should be sanitized. Or, yeah. You know. And also, also, like in the United States, there's litigation. You know, people get really hyper about suing people. So the idea is you, you could but not slip a on a fruit, yeah. a piece of fruit and then sue the city. So when we first started our project, we always wanted to plant fruit parks and start planting fruit trees. But we quickly found out that every city in the U.S. had mandates against planting fruit in public spaces or in parks or along, along sidewalks. So... So then we, we started um, to sort of get by these laws. We started giving fruit trees to the public and then they would agree to plant them on their side of the property and have it grow over the, the fence onto the sidewalk. So in this, in this way, doing the same thing, but in this sort of, you know, handed way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, get around the boundaries of legality. It took us a long time to be able to actually make a fruit park we installed the first one in the state of California in 2012. And it was a long process of negotiation with the county of Los Angeles. 
ultimately, thankfully, we're artists, and we were able to compete for a bid for a public artwork. And in the design of the artwork, we happen to just say that the material that we're using is wood, but it happens to be alive. <laughs> and that this wood that happens to be alive, that is a sculpture, also happens to produce fruit. <laughs> but really, once, once the project was approved, though, it did take about a year of negotiating with different you know, aspects of civic government to get the ap- approval to put it in. The, the takeaway, though, has been really terrific. There are now multiple public fruit parks in Los Angeles, and it is something that is more than on trend. It now is an expectation that the city and the county think about these ways when they're designing public spaces. Do people use them? That's the best part. You know, the fear was that they be, wouldn't be used correctly, that you know, people would vandalize these trees, and the opposite has been the takeaway, is that they're actually kind of special for the neighborhood and the people that visit these places. They understand the rules of engagement or about sharing, and they are extremely utilized. There's never complaints about fruit on the ground or anything like that. I think there's also something to do with just the symbol of generosity and sharing that a fruit tree brings up just the ideas that, you know, fruit trees will give endlessly, and if somebody comes and takes all the fruit next year, there'll be a ton more. There's always more. And it's kind of changes the feeling of a neighborhood. We wanted to, to try and find some time to, to forage some fruit and, and make something for today, but we didn't have time. But, but London does have a lot of fruit trees, especially at the moment. All the, the cherries are out, the next ones to come out, uh, crab apples and then plums, which is really exciting. How do people get their hands on these maps of, that, that you've created? How, if somebody is like a really avid forager <laughs> and they want to walk around Brixton, because it's hanging in the exhibition, but can they access it any other way? We make the maps uh, originally hand-drawn, and they're designed so they could be looked up on a screen or they could be printed out so you could walk around. There's hardly information about how to use the maps. I mean, mostly it's about due diligence to say hi to strangers and to bring a friend and go by foot to experience a place, less about how to pick something. Um, Sometimes we include maps of timelines, like, you know, don't try to pick apples in February. It's not a good idea. (laughs) Other than that, there's uh, many sources, particularly in London, that uh, indicate fruit trees. Uh, We also have a website that we've been working on for years called The Endless Orchard that connects these fruit resources in cities and communities around the world. That like a whole range of jams made from foraged fruits. You can get everyone in the world to make a whole kind of foraging escapade. What what are you working on now? You've just done a bit of planting, haven't you? We did, yeah. We we just came from Bergen, Norway, and and, uh, we had a an exhibit just opened there. It was really exciting because Bergen, it turns out, is very progressive. We had wanted to plant, you know, even just like one tree as part of our exhibition. And the city, at the, at the same time, as it was having the idea that they would also plant trees. They kind of fast-forwarded this, um, and we planted a bunch of plum trees. But their plan is to really throughout the whole city and throughout the old part of the city as well as going into the suburbs to create berry patches and, and plant public parks with, with fruit trees. So they, they have a really huge plan that they're going to implement really fast. And they do things right too. Like these, these were not like small plum trees we planted. These were mature, large trees with like tons of fruit on them. And um, 
I, I want you to convince London to do that. It would be yeah. quite nice, no? Well, I think you're going to need to start guerrilla planting. <laughs> <laughs> Their administrative process, in my opinion, was extremely nimble and um, accommodating to new ideas that are, for many places, extremely radical. So, as Austin described, it wasn't just one neighborhood that was being impacted by this shift. It is across the entire city, the existing public parks, and adding in new public rights of way that would become not just a special foraging park like we see sometimes in North America happen. It's holistically across different communities. There's large-scale strawberry patches that will just be maintained by the city for everyone to just go get strawberries when it's the best moment. Or blackberries, blueberries, and plum. Like, throughout the calendar season, it becomes another way of experiencing the city, which to us is like, wow, good. That's just the best. It was interesting how it started, too, because it literally was one guy who was interested in, in the project. So he had to get 500 signatures... And then once you get those signatures, then it becomes a real thing that they, the city has to talk about and decide if they want, want or not. Is it, um, I think in the, how many signatures do you have to get in L.A. to change something? I don't know, a lot. Well, it's I was not just going to say, I, don't, I think <laughs> 500 signatures in London does anything. Oh, no. No. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it, there is a lot more openness, you know, for me, especially in context of, of this exhibition, when you think of, of the state of... of you know, food, it, it can be a little bit grim and depressing, but there's also so much creativity and so many great ideas and actually a lot of openness to see things differently and to do things differently. And I, I think this is kind of the main thing for me with this exhibition is that, you know, these things do happen, you know, if 500 Bergeners want to have plums, you know, there will be plums and there are... <laughs> You know, there are ways of doing things differently, and I think it's very liberating. Fruit trees, well, trees in general, but fruit trees included, I mean, they last longer in neighborhoods than most people. I mean, they're actually a resident in a community. Trees are a resident in a community than people who live there. I mean, maybe a family will be there for five generations, but the tree itself can be persistent. Mulberries are amazing. They can be productive for 500 years. It can be a productive tree. So the way that a tree interacts with an urban space should not be limited to what someone's imagination was in 1851. We can add on to that now, and we can think in more ways that are appropriate for the 21st century. Yeah, like maybe getting rid of cars in the city center. And plant orchards. Yeah. Let's work on that. I'm for that. <laughs> yeah. Just going to ask you to give these guys a big, big hand. Please join us again for another special edition of the Honey & Co. The Victoria and Albert Museum in Kensington. It's a really incredible exhibition. If you want to see Bigger Than the Plate at the V&A, you can get tickets from their website. There's a tasty little promo for our listeners. You just uh, type... Food 40. Give you a 40% discount and you can come and enjoy it for yourself. It's really worth it. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. 